0: I'm going to read some words, I'm going to read a couple different uh, I don't know, passages, texts, paragraphs, and I want you to listen, listen very carefully, and see if you, who you, if, if you can guess who these words are speaking of, who these words are talking about, uh, maybe even where these words come from, uh, just from the text themselves, who, who are they about? And some of you might do very well, uh, and some of you might not, and that's okay, just bear with me. All right, so here we go. Tell me, muse, of the man of many devices, who wandered far and wide after he had sacked Troy's sacred city, and saw the towns of many men, and knew their mind. Any ideas of who that is about? Odysseus, that's right. It's from Homer's The Odyssey, following the Iliad. Now, The Odyssey, according to some historians, was first published around 700 B.C., but the oldest fragments we have of The Odyssey are from about the third century B.C., and they're just little fragments. I think the complete manuscript is like 100 B.C. But the actual events they talked about predate this by many hundreds of years. Uh, the Trojan War, which uh, the Odyssey is, is based on, took place about 1200 to 1100 BC. That's the historian's best guess. Uh, and Odysseus was probably a made-up character, but he could have been based on a real person. All right, so that was Odysseus. Now, let me read another one. Here we go. Two households, both alike in dignity, In fair Verona, where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life. Romeo and Juliet, that's right. I included that one specifically for the ladies. (laughs) William Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet Uh, around 1591 to 1595. uh, His works were collected and published after his lifetime. So we actually don't own any of the original manuscripts uh, from William Shakespeare. Uh, they, They were from after his lifetime. All right, now, I'm going to read some final words. Listen very closely to see who you think these words are talking about. See. My servant will act wisely, he will be raised and lifted up, and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus, that's right, that is the safe Sunday school answer, and you got it, that was talking about Jesus. So our next question is, where does this passage come from in the Bible? If it's talking about Jesus, well then it must come from the Gospels. I mean, it's so clearly about Jesus, he was high, he was exalted, he was lifted up, his appearance was marred. Well, must come, come from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or, or maybe Paul, you know, after the events of the crucifixion took place, maybe Paul wrote this down. Some of you know, this is actually not from the New Testament, this is from the Old Testament. This is from the book of Isaiah. We have, if you look at your bulletin, we have no sermon title, we have no sermon passage, because I wanted you to hear the passage first. So who is this talking about? We're actually going to read a passage a little bit later in Isaiah chapter 53. So we read from Isaiah chapter 52 and Isaiah chapter 53. And the prophet Isaiah uh, prophesied these passages 700 years before Christ. So like the story of Odysseus, well that comes after the events of the Trojan War. But this description of Jesus comes 700 years prior to Jesus. And how do we know that it came before His lifetime? Well, we actually have physical proof that this, these passages were written down. So maybe you won't say, okay, maybe it's not 700 years. You were not willing to give me that. But What if we had a document that dated before Christ, these words on it? So Jim, why don't you go ahead and throw up on the screen... One of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Can you go back one to the the big scroll? Okay, so this is uh, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls from the Humoran Caves, which was discovered in 1947. This is the Great Isaiah Scroll. This is the Book of Isaiah. Not just the first half, the whole thing. And it includes Isaiah chapter 52 and Isaiah chapter 53. And guess how old this document dates? 125 B.C. The words we just read are in this document go to the next one so this is something that we're all gonna read together <laughs> this is Isaiah 53 10 through 12 this is where we're reading today so you can turn your Bibles and Isaiah, Isaiah 53 10 through 12 but I wanted you to see this because these words predate Jesus by 125 years this is a picture of actual words this is God's word in which he said my son is coming my suffering servant Jesus is coming He's going to be high and lifted up. It's amazing. All right, Jim, you can take him down. Thank you. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 53, verses 10 through 12. I'm reading from the NIV. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made transgression. For intercession for the transgressors. So just like the story of the Odyssey and Romeo and Juliet move our hearts, so this ancient text moves our hearts today. Uh, Romeo and Juliet teach us about love. Youth. And Isaiah chapter 53 teaches us something much more important. It teaches us about God's love for us, it teaches us about justice, about hope about suffering, about anguish. And what we read in this passage uh, is something very startling. How can love come out of something so terrible as the Father crushing the Son? Verse 10 says, it was the Lord's will to crush Him. See, God crushed Jesus. Jesus was crushed by God. Now the prophet Isaiah wrote this passage a long time beforehand and it could have spoke to events that happened during his lifetime or shortly after his lifetime but we see it ultimately fulfilled in Jesus that he is the the, the clearest answer to this passage he's the only one who really makes sense And what is it that happened to Jesus he was crushed Now, I translated this passage, and um, I'll just read some of my insight from that, uh, where it says, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. You could also translate that, and it was Yahweh's delight to crush him and make him sick. So it was Yahweh's delight, it was his will, it was God's delight to crush the Son and make him sick and cause him to suffer this text doesn't just say that God let Jesus suffer. It says God caused Jesus to suffer. It was his delight. That seems harsh. But the Hebrew doesn't let us get away from this. This, this cause him to suffer is in uh, what Hebrew grammarians like to call the hifil verb stem. And the hifils are all about causing cause him to suffer it's also active god didn't just let it happen god actively caused jesus to suffer and god did this without sinning so it was people who crucified jesus acts two twenty three says this jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of god you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men so it was god's plan and yet we did it maybe some of you feel bad for jesus you feel like he was forced to go to the cross that he uh, he was bound and 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 taken unwillingly to die for us doesn't this seem a little abusive by the father to make his son go through this couldn't god have just forgiven our sins and moved on he's god he's all-powerful Power has nothing to do with it. It's about justice. See, when we think God could have just passed over our sins, we underestimate God's holiness and we overestimate our goodness. We underestimate our evilness, our badness. We measure our sin by our perception of the sin. What if criminals measured their crimes by their perception of their crimes they would get out it was not a big deal same thing when we measure our sins by our own perception of the sins instead we should measure our sins by the greatness of the one we sin against by the holiness by the absolute perfection see our god is an infinitely pure and holy and great god And when you sin, no matter how small or finite that sin appears in your eyes, you sin against an infinitely holy God. And so you deserve an infinite punishment. And God had mercy on us. God had mercy on us through Christ. He sent His Son to die in our place so that we wouldn't have to suffer that infinite punishment. And jesus wasn't dragged unwillingly to the cross he went there willingly it says by his knowledge in verse 11. jesus knew what he was doing and the wonderful thing is that jesus is god and so really it was god substituting himself for us john stott writes something along these lines god Satisfied himself by substituting himself for us. God satisfied his own wrath by taking the punishment upon himself. This is love. The cross is the greatest act of mercy and self-sacrifice ever seen. As Jesus, our high priest, became our sacrifice. Now, this sermon series is loosely based on John Piper's book, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. Uh, And in that book, he has a passage on the anguish of Christ. And in it, he describes the suffering of Christ. And I'm going to quote from that book. I just want to give you a warning Uh, even though I'm not going to read a lot, it's pretty graphic. Jesus' suffering was not G rated, it was brutal. And so, if you're easily made, you know, squeamish, you can plug your ears or zone out for a second, I give you permission, that's okay. When Steve and I were serving communion, I actually spilled my communion cup on the table. Maybe some of you saw it, Well the first thing I did was I wiped it up and I took it away. And that's sometimes what we do uh, with the suffering and the blood of Jesus, we kind of gloss over it, not really thinking about how brutal it was. So for a moment, I'm gonna leave, leave the, the juice, the blood on the table. Piper quotes Eusebius, who in AD 300 described a Roman scourging of Christians. So this is Eusebius' words, describing Christians getting whipped with like prongs and bones and leather. At one time, they were torn by scourges down to the deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, their entrails, and organs were exposed to sight. Jesus was so weak and so broken, he couldn't even carry his own cross. And then when he got to the top of Golgotha, the... The mountain, they, they drove his wrists into the cross, his, his feet striking nerves, causing immense pain. If you've watched The Passion of the Christ, they, they pull his shoulder out of joint. Uh, I, I heard a, a pastor say, you know, Jesus died a thousand deaths, deaths through, through the journey of the crucifixion. It would have been more compassionate for Jesus to be burned alive at the stake than to go to the cross. God crushed Jesus. Jesus really suffered. And so why did God make Jesus go through this? The passage turns to God's mission. See, God crushed Jesus to heal us to forgive us because he loves us verse 11 says after the suffering of his soul he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities see god crushed jesus because he loves us verse 11 says he will see the light of life and be satisfied this tells us two things he will see the light of life jesus will not stay dead he will rise again and we see that in the story of the Bible but even Isaiah talks about it he talks about in verse 10 when it says he will see his offspring and prolong his days see Jesus will rise from this crushing the passage also tells us that Jesus died willingly like we talked about it because uh, because he loves us what is the the satisfaction that Jesus experiences its knowing That He's going to welcome brothers and sisters into His family. Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. Who For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. The joy is you and me. Jesus loved us that much. God loved us that much. He was willing to give up His Son. And the Son was willing to perish. Have you ever had to give up something incredibly precious to you, something that mattered so much to you, something that you loved so incredibly much, in order to gain something just as precious? Have you ever given up something in order to gain something? I got lunch with a friend this week, and we talked about weddings. Think about the image of a father walking his daughter down the aisle. When the father walks his daughter down the aisle, in one sense, he's giving her up. He's giving her away in order to gain something as precious, a son. Our father in heaven gave up his precious son so that he could welcome in sons and daughters this is a celebration a wedding celebration where parents get a new family but it comes at a cost of giving up someone they love god crushed jesus because he loves us in order to heal us See, jesus went willingly to the cross in order to make us righteous Verse 11 says, my righteous servant will justify many. So remember how we talked about the hiphel; it's the causative, God caused Jesus to suffer? Well, Jesus's suffer is in that same hiphel, and it means Jesus caused our righteousness. So God caused the suffering of Jesus in order that Jesus might cause our holiness, our righteousness, our vindication, our innocence. Jesus gave his innocence to us. Jesus justifies our injustice by suffering God's justice for us. Jesus justifies our injustice by suffering God's justice for us. See, Jesus healed us by bearing our sins, by taking away our sins. Verse 11 says, He will bear their iniquities. Now, th- this Hebrew word for bear also means uh, carry or transport, like, like a pregnancy. It's like a, it's, a, it's an incompleted action. It's, it's a process of bearing sin, of carrying sin. It's the, it's the Hebrew word sebol. It's the imperfect tense for you grammarians out there. And I think this reminds us that Jesus went through suffering, bearing our sin, and he wasn't finished until the cross. That it was a process, that he had to bear our sin through the course of his suffering, and in some ways throughout the course of his entire life as he bore his own righteousness, which he would then give to us, his holiness, his perfect obedience before God. So in verse 11, it says, he will bear their iniquities. And look at the end of verse 12. It says, for he bore the sin of many. So it switches from he will bear to he will, that he bore the sin of many. And this new word for bore is actually the Hebrew word nasa which kind of sounds like NASA. And that's actually a perfect uh, word for that because instead of carrying the sin, now he's, he's taken the sin. He has, he has lifted it up. He has taken the sin away. See, through the cross, Jesus not only bore our sin, but the action has become complete. This is in the completed tense. Jesus has completed the job of bearing your and my sin. He's taken our sin away. Let's just think about that for a moment. If you believe in Jesus, if you trust Jesus, Jesus has taken your sins away. So often, I and I'm sure many of you think about our sins and we kind of beat ourselves up. But the Bible tells us God has lifted our sins off our shoulders. Maybe you cheated at school recently. Maybe you cheated on a test. But God has lifted that sin off your shoulders. Not in God's eyes does he see you as a cheater. Maybe you've cheated on your marriage. You're going through an ugly divorce. Not in God's eyes. He has lifted that sin off your shoulders. Maybe your career is going really poorly. and You've done things at work that you know aren't ethical or moral. Not in God's eyes. God has lifted that sin off your shoulders. He forgives you. So why ultimately did God crush Jesus to heal us? To forgive us? There's one other reason that God crushed Jesus. It was to bring glory and praise to Jesus. God crushed Jesus to heal us and glorify Him. This is the main point. God crushed Jesus to heal us. To bring Jesus praise to glorify Him. Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name. See, through His sacrifice at the cross, Jesus earned the glory of heaven and the father gladly pours it out on Jesus saying this is my son look at what he has done verse 12 tells us that God gave Jesus a portion among the great and spoils with the strong this doesn't mean that Jesus is equal with other men no he's far greater but I think it It reminds us that he shares his inheritance with us. That the weak he makes strong. That broken sinners he makes righteous saints. Notice how God glorifies Jesus by numbering him with transgressors. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with transgressors. Now, in our culture, when we want to glorify someone, when we want to praise someone, we don't surround them with bad people. Think of the Olympics, for instance. What do we do when we want to say this person's amazing? We, we put one person who's also amazing at one side and another amazing person on the other side and say this person was the best of those people. Or, you know, think of an awards ceremony, uh, the, the Oscars. They, they have all the best people from the industry come and, say, you know, here's what we deserve. Instead, God takes Jesus, a sinless man who's also God, and puts him among transgressors, puts him among sinners, says, this is how I will glorify my son. And Jesus goes on to die that innocent death on the cross, between two thieves he was numbered with transgressors i think we can take two applications uh, from this application number one is that christians should care for innocent people jesus was wrongly convicted he was innocent Now, I don't know about you, maybe it's just my nature or my upbringing, but when I hear about people getting out of prison because they were found innocent, I'm usually skeptical. I find it hard to believe. In fact, the first time I heard about the Innocence Project, I thought it was a bunch of liberals trying to free criminals. That's my own confession. And yet, the Innocence Project is about finding people that have been wrongly convicted, using DNA testing, and, and freeing them. And for some reason, we as Christians tend to be the last in line to help those wrongly convicted in prison. That was personally convicting to me. So application one is Christians should care for innocent people. And application number two is Christians should care for broken people. Because Jesus came to die for broken people. To save sinners. Jesus didn't come to save good people. The news tells us there are a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of brokenness right now in our our cities. Tells us about Baltimore, the riots, and Ferguson. And maybe when you watch the news stories, you your first response is to side with one side or the other, to say, "Oh, those police, they they're in the right. Those rioters are just rebellious. They're just demonstrating because they don't have anything better to do." Or maybe you side with the rioters and say, "Man, there is so much injustice in the world." Those police officers deserve to be punished. What the Bible tells us is that we're all broken. We're all broken because of sin. We all need a Savior. You and I are broken without Christ. Our world is broken. Our cities are broken. Our countries are broken. We're all broken without Jesus. And so Christians should be the first people to care for those that are broken those that we don't always understand God crushed Jesus to heal us and glorify him I want to close by reading a story some of you may have heard as a sermon illustration before I heard it as a sermon illustration once Uh, there's a couple different versions available online one of which I have, but you can find the original story in a Baptist magazine from 1967, which was a retelling of an even older story. Um, So I'm just going to go ahead and read this, and we're going to close. There was once a bridge that spanned a large river. During most of the day, the bridge sat with its length running up and down the river paralleled with the banks, allowing ships to pass through freely on both sides of the bridge. But at certain times each day, a train would come along and the bridge would be turned sideways across the river, allowing the train to cross it. A switchman sat in a shack on one side of the river where he operated the controls to turn the bridge and lock it into place as the train crossed. One evening, as the switchman was waiting for the last train of the day to come, he looked off into the distance through the dimming twilight and caught sight of the train lights. He stepped onto the control and waited until the train was within a prescribed distance. Then he was to turn the bridge. He turned the bridge into position, but to his horror, he found the locking control did not work. If the bridge was not securely in position, it would cause the train to jump the track and go crashing into the river. This would be a passenger train with many people on board. He left the bridge, turned across the river, and hurried across the bridge to the other side of the river, where there was a lever switch he could hold to operate the lock manually. He would have to hold the lever back firmly as the train crossed. He could hear the rumble of the train now, and he took hold of the lever and leaned backward to apply his weight to it, locking the bridge. He kept applying the pressure to keep the mechanism locked. Many lives depended on this man's strength. Then, coming across the bridge from the direction of his control shack, he heard a sound that made his blood run cold. Daddy, where are you? His four-year-old son was crossing the bridge to look for him. His first impulse was to cry out to the child, Run, run, but the train was too close. The tiny legs would never make it across the bridge in time. The man almost left his lever to snatch up his son and carry him to safety, but he realized that he could not get back to the lever in time if he saved his son. Either many people on the train or his son must die. He took but a moment to make his decision. The the train sped safely and swiftly on its way and no one aboard was even aware of the tiny broken body thrown mercilessly into the river by the onrushing train. Nor were they aware of the pitiful figure of the sobbing man still clinging to the locking lever long after the train had passed. They did not see him walking home more slowly than he had ever walked to tell his wife how their son had brutally died. Now, if you comprehend the emotions that went through this man's heart, you can begin to understand the feelings of our Father in heaven when he sacrificed his son to bridge the gap between us and eternal life. Can there be any wonder that he caused the earth to tremble and the skies to darken when his son died? How does he feel when we sped along through life? without giving a thought to what was done for us through Jesus Christ this story gives us a picture of what the father did to the son to crush the son in order to save some but there are pieces to the story that are missing like the piece that those people on the train are enemies of the father That God rightly can pour out His wrath upon them because they hate Him. Because we hate God. If it were not for His grace to come and to choose to rescue us to make enemies friends. There's another piece that's missing. That the Son died willingly in our place. He wasn't a tiny boy running across a bridge unaware of His surroundings. He went to the cross on our behalf willingly there's a final piece the good news piece that jesus did not stay dead he rose again in victory over sin over death over the grave so that if you trust in him if you say lord jesus you're my all i'm all in you can know the forgiveness of the father the joy if you haven't done that yet Today can be the day. God uses the victory of the Son to heal us, to love us, to save us, and to bring praise and glory to Jesus. God crushed Jesus to heal us and glorify him. Let's pray. Father God, We stand in awe of what you did for us out of your love, out of your grace, that you would sacrifice your son on our behalf and that Jesus would do this willingly out of obedience for you, out of love for us. Thank you that Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of the Father and he is so glorified, Lord. that He is so praised because he deserves everything. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you'd please rise for the benediction. We've been talking a lot about violence and suffering, so I wanted to end with something that's the opposite of that. This comes from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.